In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, and we are continuing in Luke's Gospel in chapter 13. We read there that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's on his way, and while uh, the uh, disciples may not understand exactly why, even though he's told them, we know that he's going there uh, to his crucifixion. He's going there to offer himself as the uh, Paschal Lamb, as the Passover Lamb, uh, to cleanse all of Israel and the whole world with his blood. And so as he's uh, set his face towards Jerusalem and he's uh, preparing for this sacrifice, he is teaching about uh, what is going to be required of those that will receive his sacrifice. And the crowds are starting to understand that Jesus is saying that not all those that call on the name of the Lord, that not all those that belong to the nation of Israel will be saved. That not everybody is going to heaven. And so this man comes to him and he says, wait a minute, let me get this straight. Are, are a lot of people going to heaven or just a few people going to heaven? So he's starting to get this sense that uh, there's going to be some select group that's going. And of course, Jesus answers the question he should have asked, which is not how many are going, but how do I get to heaven? And so this concept that there's going to be something required, that there's going to be some participation required, that, um, that those who are outside of the kingdom are going to suffer is not a new one for Jesus, but it's one that the prophets have always proclaimed. It's part of the prophetic ministry that we've seen from the very earliest of days. And indeed, the prophet Isaiah here, 800 years before Jesus, is uh, telling the nation of Israel, he's telling all the people of God, uh, you have to come into uh, the righteousness and justice of God. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. So uh, Jesus is saying, strive, right? Have effort to get into the kingdom. And Isaiah is warning scoffers. What does it mean to scoff? Scoffing means to dismiss, to say, that's no big deal. Forget about that. That's not important. Right to scoff is to reduce something, to dismiss it, to say that it's not important. And there is no way to strive. There's no way to work hard, right, to, to, to put one's best effort forward and scoff at the same time. So if we are going to strive, we can't scoff. And so Isaiah is uh, talking to those scoffers. And what does he mean here? Well, who is he speaking to? Who is scoffing the Lord? Who he's speaking to are the rulers of Israel. These are the people that um, have responsibility for the people. And they've done a couple of things. They've rejected the worship of God. Right? They've said, it doesn't matter who you worship. Worship Baal. Have idols. It doesn't matter. And they've put their hope in treaties. They've said that our salvation, our help from the uh, conquering, invading armies is going to be from Egypt and from others that we sign treaties with. So, you know, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel at a time where they've separated in civil war, right? The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's an empire by the name of Assyria who's been threatening the northern kingdom and eventually they'll take it over. And of course, Israel's answer to this, and the answer of the household, the, the kingdom of Judah, is to form treaties with their neighbors. So they're looking to politics. 
They're looking to politicians, to armies, to militaries, rather than to the worship of the Most High God. And so Isaiah warns them that when they look to these idols and they look to their treaties, rather than to the righteousness of God, they're scoffing, they're striving to enter the kingdom, and the Lord is going to break this mold. Right, And so we see all these metaphors. We see this metaphor of fire uh, that we use for the purifying of metals. Right, uh, Gold and silver is put into the fire and the dross, the dirt, is burned away. And so this purifying fire, this breaking of the mold is what the Lord says he's going to do to the nation of Israel. So he's breaking that foundation in Zion and he's establishing a cornerstone. So he's breaking down the old structures, breaking down the old kingdoms, breaking down the old way they had of worship, and he's establishing his cornerstone. And of course, we know that cornerstone is the Messiah, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? Yeshua Mashiach, Christ the King, Christ the Messiah. He is the cornerstone that's being laid. What's a cornerstone? A cornerstone, when we're building a building in the ancient world, is the first stone that's laid. It's the very first stone in construction. It's a large stone that's going to be put at the corner of the two most important adjoining walls. So the cornerstone is set, and then from the cornerstone, a line will be strung from the edge of the cornerstone to the next end wall. And so all of the bricks or the stones will be lined up according to that line and lined with the cornerstone. And then a plumb line is set. So from a high place, a string with a plumb line, a plumb weight, is attached so that the very tip is on the edge of the cornerstone. And then as the stones or the bricks are set up, they are lined up according to that string so that they are resting securely on the cornerstone. This is discernment. We talked about this last week. When we're going to discern, when we're going to know what to do in our lives, when we're going to know how to act, what decisions are we supposed to make? All of that is going to be based on our measuring against the cornerstone. We have to figure out who is Jesus, where is Jesus, and what is he doing? How is he acting in my life? Where is the Lord leading me? What is he doing in my life? And then all of our decisions are going to be built upon the cornerstone, upon Christ, upon that foundation. And the Lord says these two main lines in our lives and in our communal life together are justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Justice is that balance. Right? Justice means that, uh, that we have uh, the consequence or the reward for what we do. Right? It means that if we do righteousness, we get a reward of good things. If we sin, we get the consequences of sin. We know what justice is. We talk about it. We know it when it's not there, but nobody's ever seen it. Right? We've never actually seen justice. If we look to the courts, if we look to society, we're not going to see justice. Right? We're going to see people putting their thumb on the scale. Right? We've never actually seen true justice. But we all know because we've been made in the image of God, because we know right from wrong, we know his ways, we all know justice, we all know that what we see isn't quite it, we know when we get close, we know when we get farther away, 
And the more that we reflect upon it and we look for that good of Christ and of his justice, the more we'll be able to discern and know justice in our own lives. The next line is righteousness. It means doing the things of God, doing the good things of God, right? The loving thing, right? The kind thing, the generous thing. So we're always looking to see what is the loving thing? What is the thing that shows my love for God and my love for my neighbor? And that's righteousness. And so when we're constantly looking to see, again, um, we haven't seen it perfectly in this world, but we know what it is when we get close to it. If we're discerning, we'll be able to build our lives according to that righteousness. And so Isaiah says, this is the cornerstone, and the Lord is going to sweep everything else away, and he's going to use the same means to sweep it away that he used to build Israel in the first place. And he mentions two famous battles. He says it's going to be like rising up on Mount Perizim and the Valley of Gibeon. He's referring to two famous battles with Joshua and David and the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. So he's saying the Lord is going to act powerfully the same way he did in these battles. This would be for, like for us if, if we said it's going to be like uh, General Washington at the Battle of Princeton or like General Grant at the, uh, at the Battle of Vicksburg, right? The Lord is going to act mightily and it's going to be the establishment of this place and of this success. So he's saying just like those ancient battles and the establishment of Israel, the Lord is going to come and he's going to knock down walls that are not straight. Those walls that are broken down, those walls that are, that are zigging and zagging and that are leaning, and he's going to establish everything and his kingdom upon that cornerstone. And if we want to participate in that, we have to, as Jesus says, strive. We have to strive. Which, in different times in church history, people have wanted to shy away from. Oh no, we can't work, right? We can't put any energy in. There can't be any work on our behalf. Well, this striving isn't us earning salvation. The Lord gives us grace freely. The question is, what are we doing with it? And Jesus' answer is, we need to be striving. We need to be efforting with intensity to enter into the narrow door. It's a strange thing that he says a narrow door because this is the kingdom of God we're talking about. And a kingdom and a king's palace would have broad doors, right? A king's palace has broad doors. It might even have double doors where you can walk in with a great retinue and you can carry things in with you. The narrow door is the door of the poor house, right? If we look at um, the construction, the architecture of the houses of ancient Israel, especially those in a city like Jerusalem, uh, they would have uh, very narrow head beams because <clears throat> the strength right, of those beams of the doorway determines how broad you can make it. And if you have thin, weak wood and very little of those kinds of strong wood materials, you can't have a very strong header, which means you've got to have a very narrow door. So a poor man's house would have this very narrow door. And even if you've been to Europe, if you've visited castles, you know that so many of those had very small doors where, especially if you're somebody like me, right, I have to get down really low and go in one shoulder at a time, right? I can't even in many of those doorways walk straight in. I've got to turn, right? And get in through that narrow door. The castle in Edinburgh, when I went and visited it, I wanted to see the place where James I was born, right? And to get into that, I practically had to get on my knees to get down underneath that little tiny door into this little tiny room, even where a king was born, right? 
So the narrow door, you can't carry anything into it. If you're going to get in, you can't have anything in your hands. You can't carry anything with you. So we can't bring our idols. We can't bring our military. We can't bring our politics. We can't bring um, any of these other things. All we can bring is ourselves. We're just barely going to squeak in ourselves into that narrow door. And it's going to take all the effort, all the strength that we have. And when we come in, in that striving, the Lord is going to either recognize us or not recognize us. And he gives this parable here, this short parable about some who come in and the Lord says, I don't know you. Well, how can that be? Now, the, the ways that we interpret Scripture are, first and foremost, we read it for its simple, straightforward meaning, right? So when the Lord says strive, He means it, right? Simple, straightforward meaning. Then the second thing that we do is we look at how it reads in other places in Scripture. So we compare Scripture to Scripture, right? Where has He done this before? Where have we seen this before? We interpret it that way. And then we can look for these multiple layer meanings. The thing we can't do is make Scripture disagree with itself. And we can't add these layered meanings that might disagree. So they all have to agree with the simple plain meaning and then with those multiple. And we can have many, many metaphoric meanings. So here's just one way of reading this when Jesus says uh, that those will come who say we have eaten and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. So what might he be talking about there when he talks about people who say, we've eaten with you and you've taught? One way of talking about this is Holy Communion and the confession of faith in the creeds and in our prayers. Right? So people might say, we received Holy Communion. We ate your body and blood. We've received the sacrament of baptism. You must know us. Or we've confessed the faith. We've claimed ourselves as Christians. We've proclaimed the creed. We've said the prayers. And then Jesus says they will be addressed as workers of evil. So these are people who eat the right foods and say the right things, who present themselves in the right way, but are working evil. This is what, when I was growing up, we would call a poser. Right? Opposer. I've been a poser myself, right? I can dress like a cowboy, but I, I don't know how to ride a horse, right? I've dressed like a surfer. I can wear surfer clothes, but you try to get me up on a surfboard, I'm going to fall over in the water, right? That's a poser. Somebody who can dress the right way, who can eat the right foods, who can use the right language, but then can't follow through with the action. So Jesus is saying here, posers are not coming into the kingdom of God. If you've received the food of righteousness and the instruction of righteousness, then you have to live a righteous life. This food that he gives, his body and blood, and the teaching that he gives is food to give us the strength that we need, freely given to us, not earned, by grace, given to us, so that... We may do the works of righteousness so that we may strive in the life of righteousness. But if we consider and we keep in doing evil, then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll get what we have signed up for, what we've, what we've done. And so he says, some people are going to come from the east and the west, the north and the south. What's he saying there? He's saying, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have entered, he's saying... All of those 
who participate in the righteousness of God, who strive to enter, who receive that grace and do good, will be welcomed in, while those who say, well, Abraham is my father, will be rejected. doesn't matter who our father is. It matters what we do with the grace that's been given. And he says, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And again, there's many ways that this has been interpreted. Sometimes it's been interpreted as uh, the Jews versus the Gentiles. I do not think this is a particularly helpful way of reading this passage, especially not to us. Another way of reading it might be those of us who have known the Lord our whole lives, who have been in the church, who have received the gospel, and we have failed to do what's right. When it came time to do what was hard, to do what was courageous, we scoffed and rejected the righteousness of God. That's a scary thought. And the writer to the Hebrews addresses that. He addresses those of us who have been raised in houses of righteousness, but have rejected. And so while scoffing is the enemy of striving, bitterness is the enemy of grace. You remember that last week in the letter to the Hebrews, we saw at the very end of the passage where the writer said, strive for peace with everyone. With everyone, right? So we don't get to say, forget about that guy. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like the way they vote. We're supposed to be striving, efforting to have peace with everyone. And immediately following that, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So it's freely given, but do we accept it and participate with it? See to it that everybody obtains it. There's nothing we can do to earn it, but are we accepting it or are we rejecting it? And he says, make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So if our hearts are bitter, we won't receive that grace. And Esau is a great example. If you're thinking, what would that bitterness look like? Esau is a wonderful example. So here he is, right? A son of Isaac. He's the firstborn. He should have, uh, the, uh, he should have the blessing and he should have the birthright as the firstborn. But in bitterness, what does he do? He practices sexual immorality. He says, I'm going to go off and marry these Canaanite women, even though my parents want me to marry a woman of righteousness of our own faith. First big mistake. For anybody thinking of marriage or counseling a young person in marriage, be careful who you marry, right? Because those, that person that may lead us astray from righteousness, that may lead us away from the Lord, will have a, a very strong effect on our lives. We want to marry and come close to people who are going to encourage us in that walk in righteousness and in, in justice. And so Esau is a warning for us, right? Instead of following the way of his parents and, and striving and yearning for the grace of God, he treated it lightly. He treated it bitterly. And he sells his birthright, the writer says, for a single meal. So while Jacob is the image for us of striving, right, wrestling with God all night, saying, I'm not going to let you go. Esau treats his birthright and blessing lightly and lets it fall away because he had allowed that bitterness to come into his heart. And the writer says, 
that when we receive that grace, he says we're going to receive it and we're going to cling to it as the kingdom as something that's eternal in our midst and not something that will be destroyed and fall away, something that is temporary. So we're always looking for that which is eternal rather than temporary. That is how we're going to be able to receive grace, how we're going to be able to strive, is to be focusing on, on what's eternal. And so just like in Isaiah, the way we have these, these two examples of great battles, the writer to the Hebrews is using an example of two times when the Lord reveals himself to Israel. And he talks about them as these two mountains. He talks about the mountain where the Lord revealed himself to Moses and then Mount Zion. So you'll remember in the Exodus that when the nation of Israel comes out, the Lord appears to Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives him the law, right? He teaches him the right way and he shows him tabernacle worship. He teaches him how to worship in the tabernacle. These things are temporary. The tabernacle is temporary. The tablets are temporary. The Ark of the Covenant is temporary, right? The way that they practice circumcision is temporary. These things are swept away. Instead, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. What's Mount Zion? Mount Zion is that 2,000 foot mountain that Jerusalem sits on. So we might think, wait a minute, is the Lord telling us we're supposed to be buying plane tickets now and all getting some flights to Tel Aviv and then taking a bus to Jerusalem? Is that what he's talking about? Are these coordinates? For us to have salvation, we've got to go to that city? No, he says, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem that's promised that descends from heaven here in our midst right now. The Lord's saying, I'm bringing a city right here, right now. We are practicing living in the heavenly Jerusalem right here, right now. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is within you, right? The kingdom of heaven has been established. The heavenly Jerusalem is descended and we are citizens of that heavenly Jerusalem. Before we're citizens of a state or a country or any ethnic group, we are citizens of of the heavenly city, Jerusalem. And when we come to live in that heavenly city, we do so with innumerable angels and festal gathering. We are looking to keeping our eyes focused upon an eternal heavenly city of worship that is right here and is right now. And in the center of that city is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to his sprinkled blood. He says, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in the same way he talked about Mount Sinai and the blood of Abel, which cried out for what? For revenge. The blood of Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness, for compassion, for mercy, for joy, while the world cries out for revenge. And so in that city, he says, yet once more, um, hang on to those things that cannot be shaken, but may remain. That heavenly, eternal city. And he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See that gratitude for receiving that kingdom, the gratitude 
for the Lord introducing us and bringing us into this narrow door, into this heavenly kingdom. It's that gratitude that's the antidote to bitterness. We cannot be grateful and bitter at the same time. But when we give thanks to the Lord for inviting us into this heavenly country, into this place of justice and this place of righteousness, when we rejoice in that, bitterness goes away and we have the energy, we have the, the, the desire, we have the passion to strive, to strive for peace with our neighbor, to strive for peace with the Lord, to strive for the righteousness of his kingdom. And we have that energy and that faithfulness to strive for it in our personal lives to strive for it in our families, in our community, in our city. Through gratitude, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we establish our lives upon that cornerstone. And we are built into a heavenly city, a heavenly country, a heavenly place where the Lord would dwell in our midst, where His blood would be poured out, crying for mercy and grace upon all those that we come into contact with. May we be established upon that cornerstone. May our lives and our families be set firmly upon Him and upon His grace that we may strive for His kingdom this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.